can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Philippians. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring one to you so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study. And we are in chapter 4. And Lord willing, um, we will finish the book tonight. But I did provide myself an escape hatch in case it's getting late. I'm learning. I'm growing. Before we begin, I just want to remind you that what we're doing here is really only one half of what we're to do and and really what our calling is as Christians. We come in here to be fed, to be taught, to be built up, to be instructed so that we can go out there and make a difference. The Great Commission is Jesus telling us, Go ye therefore and teach all nations whatsoever things I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what we're doing here now only is worth anything if we take it out there and allow the Lord to use us. If we allow what we're hearing, what we're learning, what we're taking in to build us up and affect our lives so that we can go out there and be Christians, to be little Christs to the world that's watching. Amen? Amen. But there's always a danger in Christians and in churches and in, in this thing called Christianity to always be taking in but never to be giving out. And the result of that is always spiritual slumber and spiritual death. So I pray that tonight what we hear, what we learn, what we receive wouldn't just be for us that our ears would be tickled, but it would motivate us that when we go out there our feet can walk. So Philippians chapter 4. How many of you drove here tonight in a car or rode here in a car? By show of hand. Good number of you. How many of you that drove here or rode here in a car tonight would be able to come up here and explain to us how that car works? Meaning the internal functions of its engine and the transmission and, and, and you know, the combustion and the compression. And, and who could come up here and explain that to us by show of hands? Okay, just a couple, a lot less. See, we understand how the thing works in that you turn the key, you put it in drive, you step on the gas, and it goes. And, and that's about as far as we need to take it. But once it comes to what makes it work, that's a completely different story. Christians are a lot like cars. In fact, people are a lot like cars. We can spend some time with them. We can observe their actions and their their demeanor, their voice inflections. We can listen to them talk and get to know them a little bit. And we could describe them. We could tell you what they do. This is what this person does. But once it comes to knowing how that person works, in other words, the inner workings of what makes them tick, that's a completely different story. And, and, and many of us, we barely even know how we ourselves tick, how we ourselves work, much less someone else. I, I bring that up, I make that point, because at the end of the last chapter, the Apostle Paul gave us an exhortation. In verse 17 there of chapter 3, Paul said this, 
He said, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. He challenged them to use his life, his ministry, his attitude, everything they could about him as an example or as a pattern for their own Christianity. Now, this would paint a picture in the mind of Paul's audience because they knew Paul. They heard the things that he said. They were acquainted with him. They sat under his teaching for a period of time. And for 11 years now, they had some form of a relationship with Paul. So when he says follow them or follow him, they know a little bit of something about what he means. What would people say if they were going to describe the Apostle Paul? They would say he's a man of perfect peace. He's just got this internal stability and nothing seems to shake him. He seems to have unmatched strength. He, He takes a beating, but then he gets up and he just keeps going. Nothing stops him. He's a man that's confident in the things of God. He's free. He just seems so liberated. There's nothing that chains him. He's got no inhibitions. He's fruitful. He's productive. It seems like everything that he does for the Lord bears fruit. He's a very fruitful man, and he's unstoppable. Nothing stops him, and he's got this love. There's something about him that when you're around him, you just know that he loves you. And they would be able to tell you all of these things about Paul because they had been with Paul. Now, Paul is saying to them, Now I want you to copy me. I want you to take the example that you've seen in me, and I want you to do the same thing. Now, for us to just say, well, that's our Bible study tonight. We're just going to copy Paul. Or for them to receive that exhortation and just say, all right, well, that's what we're supposed to do. Let's just copy Paul. So from now on, we are people that have a perfect peace. And we are unstoppable. And we are people that love sincerely. And we're people that have unmatched strength. And we are people that are fruitful and productive we, because we are following Paul's example. Do you know what that would be like for us to do that, for them to do that? It would be like taking that same automobile and cutting a hole in the floor and turning it into Fred Flintstone's car. Okay, we're going to make this thing go down the road now. And, and so you cut the hole in the floor and everybody looks at you and says, wow, they're driving a car. But they can't see that underneath you. You're straining, trying to get that thing to go. And then you come to a hill. (laughs) There's some difficulty and you say, "Uh uh-uh, it ain't happening. Look, I'm not Paul. Because there's more to it than just simply observing the outward example and then trying to mimic or emulate the the, the results of, of what you see. That's not real. That's not Christianity. That's not what it's called to do. But yet, Paul still said to them, to follow his example. So it's, there's more to it than Paul just saying, copy me. The greater question in all of this is not what is Paul like, but rather it's what made Paul the way that he was. Because we're not called to emulate the outward, we're called to be transformed on the inward. So what made Paul the way he was? In the first nine verses of chapter 4, he gives to us a series of clues 
a few practical instructions that they would be able to follow and that we ourselves also can observe and follow so that if we do these things, we might find ourselves growing and becoming more like Paul, having that perfect peace and that unmatched strength and that unparalleled love and that fruitful and productive ministry and and all of the things that we observe in Paul that wasn't just for Paul God wants to do the same thing in us and so Paul in these nine verses gives to us some practical advice things that we can do that will make us more like him able to follow the example that he gives he begins in verse one by saying this Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. You'll notice that the chapter begins with the word therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, it's always there because it's tying the previous thought into the preceding thought. He just finished saying, follow my example, therefore, and then he begins. And the first thing that we observe when we look at Paul and we see his example is that we see that Paul was a lover of people. Listen to his language as he just begins. Therefore, my brethren. Notice that Paul didn't see himself above them. He could have very readily said to them, my children or my congregants, or my students. But he doesn't say that. He didn't look at himself as being any greater than them. When he considered his own life and when he considered these people that he's addressing, he realized that the same Lord that had purchased him and redeemed him from the slavery of sin and a destiny of hell had redeemed them from the slavery of sin and the destiny of hell. That the same Holy Spirit that had come into his life was upon their lives as well. The same work that God was doing in Paul to transform him, he was doing in them to transform them. The same path that had the same trials and the same difficulties and the same tests and the same victories and the same lessons, all of what Paul experienced... They were also experiencing, and he didn't see himself as anything greater or anything better. The only difference is that he had been on the road a little bit longer. And he had a calling from the Lord to be their pastor, to be their teacher, to be their mentor, and to be their example. And so he calls them brethren. He says, I'm I'm just one of you, and I'm glad to be one of you. I don't want to be over you. I don't want you to bow down or put me up on a pedestal. I hope that you'll be like me if you keep walking with Jesus and allow his spirit to keep working in you. He says, my brethren. And then he says this, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and my crown. He was a lover of people. He had a sincere and genuine appreciation for them and a longing to be with them. When Paul thought about the church at Philippi, he didn't think about the number of people that were in the church. It wasn't the facilities that they owned or enjoyed for their worship services or for their schools or for their programs that he thought of. It wasn't the success of the church programs. 
It wasn't the miracles that had been done by Paul while he was among them. None of that was the badge that Paul wore when he considered the congregation in Philippi. The thing that Paul thought of or that came into his mind was the faces of the people. He could remember the joy that came into their life, the light that came into their eyes at the moment that they received Jesus Christ. He could remember the victories that they had experienced and and, and the triumphs that they had as God worked in them to set them free from the past life that they had had. He could remember the parents that were still praying for struggling children or the children that were hoping that parents would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, And that was the thing that moved him. He longed for them. He appreciated them. And it was sincere. It wasn't just something that Paul could put on a resume. Oh, I started a great church in Philippi. Faceless bodies that sat in cold chairs and attended dry meetings so that they could boast about what they had and what they had done. That wasn't Paul. He had a sincere love for people. That's what moved Paul. They would listen to Paul. Now, this was a real key for Paul. It's what made him, it's part of what made him who he was, and that is this, that he realized he learned this lesson, and maybe someone needs to hear this. Maybe there's a call on your life. Maybe God has something he wants to do with you. Listen carefully. Learn from Paul. He knew this. That people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. The people that Paul led and mentored and pastored and discipled in Christ listened to him because they knew he loved them. It's such a key. It's such a thing that for when people... Listen, do people... The people that you lead know that you love them. For Paul, that was something that he would say, follow my example. I'm a lover of people. He also says, if you look also there at verse 1, he says, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and my crown, listen, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Stand fast in the Lord. Number two, if you're taking notes, is that they would hold fast to Christ. The word stand fast that's used there is a word that means to resist opposing force. And it's actually a nautical term. It would be used by those that sailed ships when they would be holding on to a particular rope or perhaps trying to tie down a sail where the wind and everything that that was in nature was seeking to rip it out of the hand of him that was holding it. They would shout, hold fast, hold fast. And that's kind of the demeanor that Paul has when he says to them, stand fast in the Lord. He had just given them a series of warnings back in chapter 3. He said, beware of evil workers. Beware of dogs that will come to you like wolves or like sheep, but wolves, but they're in sheep's clothing. Beware of the legalizers, the Judaizers that will, by degrees, seek to move you away from Christ ever so slightly and try to get you into ritualism and into religion and into works and, and, and separate you from the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. He gave them that warning and now he says, hold fast to Jesus Christ. Don't let anything come in between you and your relationship with Christ. Because everything in this world that we are in right now 
is an opposing force to your relationship with Jesus Christ. The trends and the, 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 the society, the culture, the things that are in the media, all of that is seeking to pull you away from your relationship with Jesus Christ. Satan and all of his strategy and all of his wisdom and all of the darkness that he possesses, he knows how to just very ever so slightly distract us and get our eyes off of Jesus. It isn't all at once. It isn't something that happens quickly where he just comes in and all of a sudden someone just flies off the deep end. But he knows how to get us to make subtle compromises. And it's what Paul spoke of there in chapter 3. And that's why he's, being to- he's telling them, stand fast in the Lord. Don't let anything come in between you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're either growing or you are shrinking in the Christian life. There is no such thing as autopilot, and there's no such thing as a season of coasting. It's either one or the other, and Paul says, always be growing. Be people that are growing constantly, constantly infusing Jesus Christ into your life. He moves on in verse 2, and he talks about unity in the congregation. He says, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, back in chapter 2, we talked about this conflict that was taking place between these two women. And we don't know what the conflict was. Their names mean fortune and success. So if their names give any indication to their personalities, you can only imagine the scope of problems that could have been, you know, arisen between these two women there in the church. We do know that the problem had come to the next level. Because for Paul to be hearing about it in a prison a couple hundred miles away, and then for him to call them out by name, wherein for all of eternity they will be asked, what was that conflict all about anyways, you odious and tyke, you know? And, and, and they forever go on in the chronicles of history as the people that almost caused a split in the church in Philippi. We know that there was some form of a conflict and that that conflict had arisen to a level where it was in danger of both compromising the priority of the church, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and its furtherance, and also of dividing and splitting that church so that one solid, unified congregation would become two divided congregations and that the Holy Spirit would be grieved also in the process. Now, It's interesting that Paul, knowing the mentality of humanity and the fickleness of Christians, really quickly realized when he wrote this that Euodius and Syntyche being singled out by him and listed by name right here, that they would most likely be ostracized by the rest of the church. That once this letter would come, everyone in the church would distance themselves from those two. And that those two would would just kind of be pushed onto the outskirts. And Paul knew that that was a real possibility. There was a tendency of that happening. And so, Paul wisely says in verse 3, he says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. So, he's speaking, everyone else in the church. I'm talking not just to Euodius and Syntyche. But I'm talking to all of you. And he says this, help those women. Help them. 
Don't ostracize them. Don't take sides with them. Don't encourage the debate or take sides in the issue, no matter what it is. But help these women which labored with me. And here it is. Ready? Here's the solution. This is where unity in a church body comes from. This is how problems and conflicts are solved in churches. Here it is. Paul hits the nail on the head. He says, they labored with me in the gospel. We, you and I, have a common goal. We have a common goal. Jesus Christ did not hang on a cross and let his blood drip out and let a crown of thorns be pressed into his head and his back take the cat of nine tails and a bag be put over his head while a reed or a stick was thrust across his face and nails were pounded into his feet. He didn't do that because he was concerned about the color of the carpet in the church building there in Philippi. Or because of the way someone was dressed that Euodius bought the dress that I wanted to buy and now she has it and she knew I wanted that dress and that woman is so full of pride I will never sit in the same pew with her again. When you put those petty conflicts that can rise in churches and that can divide people, and in the same lens you put the cross of Calvary and the blood of Christ, it just makes it look ridiculous, doesn't it? Our purpose, the reason that we've been saved, is because we have the treasure of the light of the glory of God in jars of clay, these earthen vessels. We have this privilege that God would put the most precious, most powerful thing in all of the universe in our vile, sinful, temporal bodies. And then he's given us the commission to go and shine it out to a world so that they might come to know this Savior, this God, and that their lives could be changed and they could also inhabit eternity. Paul says, listen, your squabble, your complaint, your gripe, with what's going on in that church or with that brother or with that sister, listen, we are laboring in the gospel. It's a sad thing when the gospel of Jesus Christ has to play second fiddle to someone's selfish pride. That's exactly what was taking place. Selfish pride was usurping the power of the gospel by two people that wanted their own way. The first solution is that we have a common goal. Listen, the second solution to, to, to division in a church is that we have a common destiny. Listen to how Paul concludes. He says, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers, listen, whose names are in the book of life. That person that maybe you don't like or that rubs you the wrong way or that you wish would just go find another church. They might be the person that lives next door to you in heaven. He might seat you next to them at the table for seven years during that wedding feast. Here's what God would say. Get thee over it. Love your brother. It's going to be sad for you, Odeus and Syntyche, I think. Maybe they'll laugh it off. Maybe we will too. We'll say, hey, what was that all about anyways? And maybe they'll answer us and we'll say, wow, that really was ridiculous, wasn't it? As we worship at a sea of glass. Strive for unity in your church body collectively. That's where the power of the gospel is. Listen, every time in the book of Acts, we read about a revival or a blessing or an increase in the church, 
always, 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 it is mentioned somewhere in the text that there was unity in the church. It's such an important thing. Keep your enemies list small within the church. Paul would say, cling to unity within the congregation. Now, the next thing in verse 4 that he tells them, following his example, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. No one ever has perfect circumstances. And nowhere in the Bible are we ever told to rejoice in our circumstances. Because circumstances change. They're fickle. I think of Haman. If you've ever read the book of Esther, there was a man named Haman, and he had something. He had a hatred towards the Jews. He was a Persian man, and he hated the Jews. And he testifies against himself. He goes home, and he tells his wife. He says these words. He says, I'm the second most powerful man in the kingdom. I have the signet ring of the king himself. I have riches and honor in abundance so that everyone bows down to me. But I can't enjoy any of it so long as Mordecai is still alive. That's powerful if you really think about it. Now, that's, I'm not talking about bitterness or hatred or Haman or Esther, any of it. But here's what I'm saying to you. Is that if you had the perfect circumstances and circumstances were what you were hoping for, there will always be something that's going on in your life that will keep you from enjoying everything else. You'll have tons of money, the fortune that you've always hoped for, the the ease that you've always wanted, but then your health goes down the tubes. What good is your fortune? What good is it then? Or your health that you want, that health that you don't have. If, If only I had the health and then you have the health, but then there's something else that goes awry in your family or in your finances, or you get sued, or something else. There's always something. We're never called to rejoice in circumstances. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You can always rejoice in Jesus. We can always rejoice in him because he saved us by his grace. We know him. Think of this. We know Jesus Christ. We know the depths of his love. We know if we read his word, the scope of his plan, that every day of our lives has already been ordained. He already knows the number of hairs that are on our head. We know his goodness towards us. We know that he's working all things in our lives together for our good and that he's committed to us and that he never makes a bad decision. And when we believe that and embrace it by faith, it allows us to rejoice in the Lord. Well, Paul doesn't stop there by just saying rejoice in the Lord. He tells us when to rejoice in the Lord as well. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, if that's on the screen, rejoice in the Lord always, I'm giving you the King James. Maybe it's not, but in the King James, it says always, A-L-W-A-Y. And I like that because, you know, if we read the word always, you know, that kind of has a different connotation to it. It's, it's always, it's all the time. But always is different because it speaks of the way. And it means all the way. All the way from here to glory, rejoice in Jesus Christ. In the times when your circumstances are good and favorable, and in the times when your circumstances are dire and bleak, you have the ability to rejoice in the Lord. Interesting, 
uh, you, you know, you all see me in this ridiculous uh, boot that I'm wearing up here. And, you know, most of you by now know that happened to me while I was jogging. You know, I was going along and I was talking um, and, and I wasn't looking where I was going. And I hit the, the, the edge of the road where it drops into the shoulder and, you know, it was like someone cracking their knuckles. It rolls over and, and down I go into the ditch. And, and after I finished writhing in pain for about 90 seconds, I, I, I hobbled back to my, you know, seated position and I had a smile on my face. And here I'm injured, I'm down, and I knew it was bad. I knew this wasn't something that I was going to get up and just be okay. You know, this was a good one. But I had a smile on my face. And, and, I, and the guys even said, oh, oh. And I said, no, no, no. I said, this is okay. This is okay. This is the Lord. This is good. I, I know this is the Lord, and I knew it. I knew it in my heart that it was the Lord. Now, I don't know why. I mean, maybe he does know exactly why. But here's what I do know. I know that for the past 10 years... I've been running up and down ladders, humping, you know, shingles and, you know, two by fours and up and down buildings, walking on pitched roofs, you know, falling off of ladders, literally, you know, on top of sky rises in the city, driving 350 miles away, back down and up, you know, early mornings, late nights, working 30 hour shifts. And in all that time, not even a broken fingernail, nothing. Never broke down in the car, never, you know, hit a deer or had to call a tow truck or, uh, you know, had an accident. Nothing in, in the whole entire time. And it was supernatural because there were times when a ladder would come down, a 40-foot ladder, and just go boof, right in front of my face, you know. And it was supernatural how God just, and then now I can, I can take an injury and God says, all right, it's your turn, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I just said, no, this is good because I need this. And, and, and I was walking through, and one of the other pastors that was there at the conference laughed when he saw me on crutches. doesn't even know me. You know, I knew him. He didn't know me. And he, he didn't even know my name. And he, and he said, did you come with those, or did you pick those up while you were here? The crutches, you know. And, and we prayed. He prayed for me. And he said, you know, Lord, it's so great that only in you can something happen that's dire, something that's a setback to us, and yet we can laugh about it and rejoice in you. Because when you know that he's for you, when you know that he knows the course that he's mapped out for you, all of a sudden your perspective is radically different. Because now it's not a setback. It's not, oh, man, my jogging schedule, I'm going to be out of shape. I'm probably going to put on 50 pounds, you know, all this stuff. No, I'm going, you know what? I'm probably not going to crash on my motorcycle. Don't, please don't come, sir. You ride a motorcycle? I ride it very little, you know, very recreationally and seldom, you know. Well, there's so many things he could be preserving. He is preserving, protecting from. And if we would just have that perspective, no matter how bad things seem, we can rejoice in the Lord because he's committed to us. He's faithful to us. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, he moves on in verse 5 to talk to us about our outward behavior. He says, let your moderation be known unto all men. That word moderation is actually a bad translation. The word has changed since 1611 when it was translated moderation. The word in the Greek actually means mild-mannered patience. Mild-mannered patience. 
And it speaks of, when he says this here, your moderation being known to all men or your mild-mannered patience. What Paul is talking about is the inward nature that is under the influence of Jesus. The spirit-controlled man that's inside of us, the mild manner, or the transformed man, or the new man that is in us. He says, let it be, and he says, known unto all men. The word known there is a word that is, is the same as discerned or perceived. So what he's saying is let your mild-mannered nature or the inward man that is under the influence of Jesus Christ, let that be discerned or perceived by those that are without. Let non-believers, when they're around you, just get the sense that they're in the presence of Jesus. It isn't where Paul is saying, be loud about your witness. He's not saying, make sure you trumpeted on the hills that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, we're supposed to do that. But what he's saying is understand that the way that you behave, your disposition when you're around unbelievers makes a difference in their life. Be under the influence of Christ out in the world. Why? And he tells us, he says, because the Lord is at hand. Why, Paul, do we let our moderation, our our mild-mannered patience, why do we let that known? Because the Lord is at hand. Listen, Jesus is coming. And you might be the only exposure that some people ever have to the person and the ways of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we cannot afford to be fleshy, to be carnal when we're on the job, when we're recreating, when we're doing things with our neighbors or conversing with people that live on our street or around the table at family parties. Let them discern and perceive that Jesus Christ is at work in your life because that is the thing that's going to open the door for you to share the message. They don't want to hear you. Do you know that? How many people know that by now? They don't want to hear you. (laughs) But even though they don't want to hear you, they are bending their necks to watch you. They don't want you to know that, but they're watching the way you handle tribulation. They're watching the way you handle persecution. They're watching the way you handle situations when they come up in your life, in your family, or on the job. They're watching you. And when they perceive or discern within them that there's something about you that's real, that's authentic, that's Christ-like, that's going to cause them to ask. They will come. And they will say, what is it about you? Even as Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, couldn't come in the daytime because he'd blow his cover. But he said, we know, we know. Even though we resist, we oppose, we make fun of, we persecute, we know that you are come from God. Because no one could do the things that you do unless God is with them. Let that be said of you and I. That they would come to us. They don't want anybody else to know they're talking to us. But when they come, what are they going to say? You're just like me. I don't see any difference in your life at all. You talk just like us. You, 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 you look at the same things. You listen to the same things. You watch the same things as us. The only difference is that you say, praise the Lord. You go to church and you carry a Bible, but inwardly, what I discern, what I perceive, you're exactly the same. Paul says, let Jesus Christ change you and then live that change while you're among them. 
the Lord is at hand. Time is short. Follow my example, Paul is saying. Jesus said this. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, it is henceforth good for nothing but to be trodden under foot of men and destroyed. Salt. What does salt do? Salt makes people thirsty, right? What happens if you eat half a bag of Tostitos? You know, Georgia made something last night. I don't even remember what it was now, you know, but it was one of those things that everybody's like, give me more, there's salt in it, you know. And, and Riley woke up, you know, so Riley wakes up and I, and, and I stand in there and Georgia had said, if he wakes up, give him his bottle. And I thought, give him his bottle, a bottle of water. He never drinks water. Why would I give, but I, but I, he cried and I thought, all right. So I grab his water bottle and I go in his room. I'm like, hey, he sees the water bottle. He goes, eh, and he takes it he goes, glum, glum, and he just drank for like five minutes. He threw the bottle on the floor and he laid down and went to sleep. Salt makes people thirsty, right? They say you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink, right? Yes, you can. Put salt in the hay. You are the salt of the earth. So what does that mean? Listen, that person that you work with, just be kind to them. Buy them a coffee. Buy them lunch. Go the extra mile to just reach out to them. Do something nice for them. It's, it goes a long way. What do they say about salt? A little goes a long way, right? You're the salt of the earth. Let it be known. He goes on in verse 6, and here he really gets into it with them now. He talks about the real issues. In verse 6, he says, be careful, or you might have, be anxious. Same word. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, their statistics state that 65% of North Americans are on some form of medication related to anxiety disorders. 65%. The annual cost for treating anxiety-type disorders is estimated to be 42 billion dollars per year that's one thousand dollars per person that suffers with anxiety that means if you're an anxious person and you're seeking some kind of treatment or relief from that ailment it's costing you a thousand dollars a year to do it 42 percent of teens and 20s openly admit that they use some form of recreational drug to take the edge off or to relieve stress or anxiety in some way. And here, Paul very simply gives us the solution. He says, stop it. Just stop. Let's move on. Verse 7. <laughs> no. <laughs> he does say stop. But listen, here's the solution. He gives us the solution. Let me save you $1,000 a year. And let me save your health and help your mental well-being. Here's the solution. Number one, get saved. Give your life to the Lord. Because as soon as that happens, if that's not you, if you aren't saved yet, as soon as that happens, the lights go on. You begin to realize why you're here, why you exist, what 
is going on in the world and where it's all headed for, where it started, where it began. And all of a sudden, you have the anchor that you need to get your balance. You're alive. There's life that comes into your soul. Now, the second thing that's going to happen is that you're going to realize there's a God who loved you when you were his enemy enough to give his own son to spill his blood as a sacrifice to forgive you of all the sins that you're feeling guilt over and that's making you anxious. It's the cure for guilt. Then, as you get to know this God, you're going to begin to realize that he has every day of your life mapped out. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He's ordained the path, and he knows the way that you take. He's got a future and a hope for you. He's working all things together for the good. He promises that no weapon that's formed against you is going to prosper, and he promises that he's going to restore the years that the locust has eaten. And when you get saved, you get to know a God that does all of those things. And it's incredible how once you realize that, you can hear the word of Christ when he says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul. Do you know what anxiety is? Anxiety is unrest in your soul. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest in your soul. So you get saved. You say, well, I'm already saved. I gave my life to Christ. I know him and yet I still suffer with anxiety. I still suffer with fear and hypertension. And these things are still in my life. So what do I do? Paul tells us. He goes on there. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Pray. Begin to pray. Can I tell you a secret? God is on a passionate quest to draw you and I closer to him. And he will do whatever it takes to get us closer to him. And God, in all of his wisdom has not ordained riches and blessing and prosperity and a rose-paved path to be the means to draw us closer to him because those things don't draw a person closer to God. But tribulation, anguish, persecution, hardship, difficulty, frustration, consternation, what do those things do? They drive us to our knees. Don McClure was talking about the man who Jesus put mud in his eye and told him to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he presented a very practical question. He said, why did Jesus put mud in his eye? And he said, let me suggest, it's because if he hadn't put mud in his eye, he wouldn't have gone to the pool and washed. Good point, right? (laughs) Sometimes we get mud in our eye. Something happens in our life and we get anxious. It produces saying, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And the Lord's saying, draw near. There's mud in your eye, so you'll come to the pool, so that you'll wash, so that you'll experience my presence, my comfort. You'll see my deliverance in my salvation. And you'll learn to trust upon me, lean upon me. And so he says, pray. If you're anxious, pray. Drop to your knees by prayer and supplication. And then the second thing he says is, listen, with thanksgiving. I believe that thanksgiving, not dinner, but the act of giving thanks to the Lord, 
would cure 99% of all anxiety and depression. If people would stop focusing on what they don't have and start to be thankful for what they do, all of a sudden there's something that happens when we give thanks. It lifts the clouds away, doesn't it? And isn't it amazing how afflictions and frustrations and setbacks produce thankfulness? It's, it's ironic, but it happens. I'll tell you something. I have never, ever in my life said thank you to God for the ability to walk until now. I wanted so bad this afternoon to get alone with God in the woods. And I couldn't <laughs> because I can't walk in the woods. You know, and, and so I, I'm, thank you, Lord. Thank you that I can walk. Thank you. For the, never would have even thought of that. If it hadn't been for the chaos, the chaos it was to remodel our house a couple years ago. At the same time, everything else was going on, and it was just pure insanity. I never, ever would have given thanks for a relaxing evening at home. (laughs) It's amazing how the, the, the trials, the tribulations, the things that make us anxious are the very instrument of God to bring us to a place of freedom. It's a great paradox, but it works. In the wisdom of God, it's the way that he's ordained it. Now, what's the result of thanksgiving and prayer when you're experiencing anxiety? He tells us in verse 7. And I hope if you're an anxious person, you underline it, memorize it, don't forget it. He says this. If you do this, he says, The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you pray, if you'll give thanks, if you'll commit yourself and get close to the Lord when you're going through those times, his promise to you, his word to you, is that he will give you a peace. Listen carefully to the type of peace. It's the peace that passes understanding. That means the situation isn't going to change. The circumstances might not get better. Outwardly, it might seem like things are still dire. Things are still going downhill. Things aren't right. But inwardly, there's a serene calm. And only God can give a peace that passes understanding. Medication doesn't give peace. that pa- Medication gives a peace that comes from medication. And then it wears off. And then you got a problem. A fixed situation folds into a new situation that brings consternation and anxiety again. But God alone can give a peace that passes all understanding that makes no sense. You say, well, what about medication? What does the Bible say about medication? The Bible doesn't teach medication. Do you know what the Bible teaches? It teaches what Paul talks about next in verse 8. It teaches meditation. Not medication. Medication isn't the answer to anxiety. The answer is meditation. What do you mean? Look at verse 8. He says, finally, my brethren, listen. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good rapport, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, Think on these things. 
Whatever things are true, pure, holy, virtuous, praiseworthy, good. He says, think on these things. He's saying, have a happy, positive disposition. Now, I know that there are some of you sitting here, and what you're thinking while I say that is, yes, I hear what you're saying, but I'm a pessimist. I'm a pessimist at heart. Now, I know you're thinking that because if I was sitting out there, that's what I would be thinking. And here's the problem, is that what people do with this this blanket statement of pessimism is that they attach it to their blood type. Well, I'm a pessimist, and I was born that way. I'm a pessimist by nature. Listen, by nature, we're all pessimists. This world produces pessimists. Because it's not a good place. <laughs> it's, it's not. And so pessimism is something we attach it. Well, I'm just a pessimist. I can't have a happy disposition because it's not in me. It's not. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Paul is saying, listen, you train yourself to have a positive disposition. He's telling us, think on the things that are true. What do we do? We think on the things that aren't true. Someone says, you know what, I can't make it to your thing that you invited me to. And we think, they don't want to come. I can't believe they don't like us. I can't, this is, and and all of a sudden we've gone 10 miles down a road that's completely false. It's not true. Paul says, think about the things that are true. Don't think that way. Recognize it, understand it, discern it. That's not the facts. The problem with pessimism is this is that when you resign yourself to become a pessimist, you begin to live in the perpetual outcome of a negative situation. That's the disposition that you carry with you all the time. You're a pessimist. Everything is always bad. The clouds are always out. Things are always going to go south. Nothing is ever going to be right. Everything is, and and you begin to have that disposition. That's the mild-mannered thing that people see within you is just this dark negativity. Paul says, don't do that. Grow out of it. Mature past it. Think about the things that are pure, the things that are true, things that are noble, things that are good, praiseworthy, virtuous. Think about those things. And notice what he says. And the God of peace will be with you. As he finished it, that's actually in the end of verse 9. But that's, that's the cure. That's the cure for anxiety, for depression, for pessimism, for negativity. So what do you do as a pessimist when the negative thought comes? When the negative thing is seeking to knock you down or take you out? He gives the answer, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Paul says this. He says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing it into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ. That standard issue, when every person gets saved, you are given a net. And that net is given to you to capture negative thoughts and to bring them into truth, bring them into subjection of Christ. You have the choice whether or not you're going to use it. And then finally, Paul concludes this section concerning his example in verse 9 as he says, those things which you have both learned 
and received and heard and seen in me do. All of these things that I have just said to you, all of these instructions and exhortations that I have given to you, this is the way that I live my life, Paul is saying to them. And he tells them, if you do it, if you will listen to what I'm saying and you will do these things, not just hear them, not just study them or take notes on them or make the observation. Yeah, that's what Paul does. But if you will do them, if you will be a person that loves people and a person that holds fast to Christ and a person that strives for unity within the congregation and a person that chooses to rejoice in Jesus Christ and not in the circumstances, in a person who allows Jesus to control your inward nature while you're living your daily life. If you choose to be a person that's anxious for nothing, but that brings every thought into captivity and allows your meditation to be on things that are right and true, three things, three things are going to happen to you that happened to Paul, that Paul experienced. Number one is that you're going to be a part of a healthy congregation. Because if a whole church is operating that way, then the gospel is going to go forward. Second of all, you're going to have a fruitful disposition. People are going to see your life and they're going to be able to see Christ. They're going to hear Christ. They're going to experience the peace of Christ coming out of your life because you're fruitful just like Paul was. And also you're going to experience peaceful liberation. Just like Paul, he could say, look at my life. You guys know that this peace that I have passes understanding. I'm in prison. I'm writing this from prison. I've been beaten countless times. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked on numerous occasions. I spent a night and a day lost at sea. I've been whipped by the Jews five five times. 39 stripes. Five times I've received that of the Jews. I've been afflicted everywhere. I've been in danger by prisoners, in danger by my own countrymen, in dangers at the sea. Everywhere I've gone, there's been nothing but affliction. But yet you've seen there's a peace in my life that's supernatural. And Paul is saying, you can have that too. Look what he says there, verse 9. He says, if you do these things, he says, the God of peace will be with you. And the choice is yours. The choice is mine. Paul peels back the skin. He holds his heart up for us to observe. He says, you've seen the way I am. This is how it's done. And if you will do the same, you'll experience the same. And the choice is up to you. Now, if you choose not to, if you don't want to have peace in your heart, fruit coming out of your life, strength and unwavering stability on your course, if you don't want those things, then you you have the liberty to be an anxious, depressed, negative, pessimistic, divisive, lonely person. You can do that. But the whole point of what Paul is saying is that what Jesus Christ did in his life is available to you as well. Should you choose to simply follow the example that he has laid? May God give us wisdom. And next week, we will finish Philippians chapter 4 together. Let's stand and pray.
Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. You give us such practical instruction. You said, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways. They're past finding out. Your word says, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him and has had it owed to him again? Lord, we're so thankful for your ways. We're so thankful tonight, Lord, that you're not far off. You're not somewhere out there in in the cosmic regions beyond our reach. But you said that we have become the temple of the living God, that you have sent your spirit, your light to be inside of us. And how I pray, dear Lord, that tonight, even right now in this moment, as we've taken in your word, as we've received your counsel, as we've heard your voice, as you've spoken to us, Lord, we just ask that you would make us, make us what you want us to be. Lord, many of us, we've become religious. We're in a rut. We've been at Bible study every week. We don't miss a prayer meeting. We have devotions every day, but yet something is dried up. Something is missing. Lord, we pray tonight that you would let your spirit move in again afresh. Lord, as we're challenged, as we look in the mirror of your word and we see Paul staring back at us and saying, follow my example, be as I am. Lord, if we're honest, we look and we don't possess what he had. So we pray right now, dear Lord, as you've spoken to us, as you've made your word known, we ask that you would send your spirit, that you would awaken our hearts again, that you would bring us new life again, and that you would give us passion, give us a vision for the gospel, give us a burden for lost souls, give us a purpose and a meaning for this life that goes beyond what we're going to do tomorrow. Please, Father, take these things, take our lives, let them be consecrated unto you. I pray for anyone here tonight, Lord, that's struggling with anxiety, that's battling with depression. Your word says, blessed are those who being in the valley of weeping, make it a well. I pray tonight that you would give those that are here, that are anxious, those that are depressed, that you would give them the supernatural ability to do that. I pray for those here tonight, Lord, that are battling, that are so drowned in the waves of oppression that you would lift them out of it by the power of your Holy Spirit. That even now you would move in our midst. That you would give us the supernatural ability to just obey what you tell us, Lord. And I pray, Father, for any here that don't know you personally tonight somehow, Lord, through the things that they've heard, they would surrender their lives to you. That they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That they would come to your table and find matchless, ceaseless grace, living water that satisfies deep within. That you would be Lord. 
over our congregation, over our families, in our situations, and in our lives personally. We just thank you so much for your faithfulness. I pray as we sing this song, you would move so powerfully here in this room and that you would confirm your word tonight to us. In Jesus' name.